I would invite you this morning to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me uh, back to the Epistle to the Hebrews, and we continue in our exposition of this portion of God's Word this morning, and we come in chapter 11 to the second verse. So our text this morning is Hebrews chapter 11, verse 2. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 2, we'll read from verse 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, for by it the elders obtained a good report. For by it the elders obtained a good report. Our Lord Jesus Christ came into this world to do the will of his Father, and in everything he sought above all and in all, to please his Father. And indeed, what he sought, he also obtained. Because we have the Father's own declaration, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Christ was one who pleased his Father in all things. And this presses, of course, upon us a, a telling question of whose praise, whose condemnation a commendation really counts. Who is it that you are seeking to please? You think to yourself, well, children are supposed to please the parents. True. Employees are supposed to please their employers. That is also true. But neither of those things, nor many others beside, are ends that are to be sought in themselves. Rather, they are means to a higher end. To whom are we ultimately to please? Whose praise counts most? You'll remember how when Paul's writing to, to servants in both Colossians and Ephesians, he tells them, don't do this with eye service, pleasing men, but do it in the fear of God. You're to be looking to your capital M master, to the Lord Jesus Christ, and seeking to please him. And so the ultimate goal is to please the Lord. And one of the means through which we do that as children or employees or spouses or, you know, other circumstances is by fulfilling the obligations that fall to us in reference to, to other people. Well, here we come in our, our exposition of, of Hebrews chapter 11. We're at the beginning and we're kind of starting off slow because these opening verses set uh, the whole direction for the way in which the, 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 the passage, the chapter unfolds. And so we need to have clear in our heads and hearts what it is that God is describing about faith in order that we can better tr connect the dots as we see it exemplified in the accounts that, that, that follow this. And so here in chapter 2, we have really another description of faith. We've noted two descriptions so far. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. And secondly, it is the evidence of things not seen. But here we see another, and that is that by faith, we are approved of God. By faith, we are approved of God, or to flip it the other direction, without faith, it is impossible to obtain a good report from God. As you'll see in a few verses later, without faith, no one can please the Lord. It is impossible to please the Lord. Without faith, it is impossible to please him, and so on. And so this morning, our theme is obtaining 
a good report. We're going to note three things as we seek to unpack this passage. First of all, we begin with men of faith. So first of all, men of faith. Look at the text. The text says, for by it the elders obtained a good report. And so we have specific people who are identified, described here as the elders. This is a reference to the men of the ancient Old Testament church who are described in chapter 1, verse 1, as the fathers. So here are Old Testament believers, Old Testament saints that are being described. These elders, these fathers, these Old Testament believers, by faith, obtained a good report. And as I said, this is introductory to the whole chapter, because what's going to go on in chapter 11 is we're going to, the Lord, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, will enumerate some of these elders, some of these Old Testament saints, and speak to us about the character of their faith, the exercise of their faith, the fruit of their faith, and so on and so forth. And so he states it here in verse 2, and then he shows it in the remainder of, of chapter 11. It's a description of faith, which will be followed by a depiction of faith. And this is helpful, isn't it? To see things in, in flesh and, and blood. I mean, you, you can read about things. You know, here, two of the snakes that we have in upcountry South Carolina are the copperhead and the eastern corn snake. And so you can read about the difference, right? The copperhead is a poisonous snake. The corn snake is non-poisonous, right? It's one of the most docile snakes uh, that, that there is. And so you can read descriptions. You say, okay, the, the copperhead, when you see it in the yard, it'll have hourglass on its back. It's thin in the middle and then it gets wide on the sides, whereas the, copper, whereas the corn snake's the opposite. It's fat in the middle and it tapers to the sides. Or the copperhead has a diamond-shaped head and the corn snake has an oval-shaped head. The copperhead has slit eyes. The other has um, round eyes and so on and so forth. So you can read this sort of thing. But it's totally different when you're shown a picture, right? Here it is. Here's what, here's what we're trying to describe. Here's what it looks like, you know, to see it in a picture, to see it out in the yard and to be able to identify them and say, now I get it. Now I recognize uh, the difference between these two things. This is true universally in our, in our human experience. Examples are powerful confirmations. I mean, this is one of the benefits, for example, of Christian biography. Why, why does the Bible itself contain, both in the Old and in the New Testament, so much inspired biographical material? because of all the benefits, the ways in which the Lord teaches and instructs us, right? We see it in our readings of, of Christian biography. I mean, I've been reading Christian biographies continuously since I was converted, and I plan to do the same until I die, because there we have in flesh and blood the depiction of the glory of communion with Christ and the strength and grace of Christ and all of the fruitfulness and the... the worked out, as it were, in the difficult context of, of um, hardship and so on and so forth. It's a stimulus to faith. Why? Because through it we see the faithfulness of God. It is a means to which, is a means through which our eyes are drawn upward. We don't go away from reading Hebrews chapter 11 anywhere else in the Bible or in uninspired Christian biography in the post-apostolic church 
We never go away or should ever go away saying, wow, these people were incredible. But rather, we ought to go away saying, wow, what a glorious God. Who is like unto him? There is none to be compared. Look at the faithfulness and glory of Jesus Christ within the context of, of his, his people. And so here in verse 2, we're told that we can see from the very beginning, indeed, he's going to start with Abel. We can see from the very, very beginning that faith alone was the means of obtaining acceptance with God. They had, the Old Testament Christians had the same faith as we have, the same in substance. They had the same object of faith, as we'll see in chapter 11. They looked, Moses looked to him who was unseen. Abraham saw Christ afar off, right? They, they looked to the same object, and they had some of the same and similar promises to what we have. And so there's continuity here between those who live after Christ's coming and those who live before Christ's coming. The same Christ, the same gospel, the same hope for the same heaven. These things were theirs. And they were men like we are, you know, in the language of James when he was speaking of Elijah. You know, they were of like passions as we are. They were of like passions as we are. They were, they were not great men or great women. You think of Moses, who's cowering and saying, I can't speak, I can't speak. Or you think of David, who's completely overlooked as the, the baby brother, never comes to the attention of those who were looking for the future leader. Right? These were not in themselves great men. They were like us. And yet they walked by faith, and it was the exercise of their faith in the glory and power and grace of Jesus Christ that they did great things, did great exploits for his, his glory. You know, to put it in a rather uh, plain poetic stanza, it is not great men that God chooses. It is men of great faith that he uses, right? The greatness is not in the men. The greatness is in the faith that God gave them and the exercise of that faith. Because in exercising faith, all of the glory goes to the Lord. It's the Lord. Faith is receiving. Faith is relying upon the Lord. It is Faith magnifies that it is all of the Lord, that we are like broken pots, earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. There's no sufficiency in and of ourselves. The sufficiency is of God. And so it was for these men of faith. We'll hear people around us in our own community here, uh, Baptists and others, who will refer to themselves as New Testament Christians. So say, well, we're New Testament Christians. And that would be perfectly fine if what that meant was, well, we live, you know, in the post-apostolic era. We live after the coming of Christ, after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, all the benefit and blessings that come with it. That's fine. 
to say that. But that's not what's meant most of the time, if not all of the time, with the expression, I am a New Testament Christian. It's New Testament as distinguished from the Old Testament saints, right? So these would be people who read their, if you took their Bible off the shelf, you would see as you opened it that the, the Old Testament would be pretty clean, right? No wrinkled pages, no smudges. It would look basically in you. New Testament would be the one that's all thumbed through and so on and so forth. Or in their churches, they're preaching exclusively from the New Testament scriptures or select portions of that, you know, all, all of the time. And they reduce the Old Testament to some exciting stories and character lessons for children. Right? This is a problem because it means they're missing three quarters of their Bible. They're missing three quarters of their Bible and have little acquaintance with the content of that inspired truth. Not only that, you will never, ever, ever, ever understand the New Testament unless you have a deep, growing, thorough acquaintance with the Old Testament. The Old Testament is what provides the foundation and the language, vocabulary, and symbols, and imagery, and everything else in the New Testament draws on that Old Testament. So you're going to be swimming in the shallows, shallow as a cookie sheet, in your understanding of the New Testament even. As Presbyterians, we are whole Bible Christians. We are whole Bible Christians because all Scripture is given by inspiration. And as Jesus makes clear, those Old Testament Scriptures testified of Him. And they are brimming end to end with the glory of the person and work of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we need to go to the old paths, wherein is the good way, as Jeremiah says, and that includes the terrain of the Old Testament scriptures. Here are men of faith from the, this Old Testament era. And in the New Testament, our present faith, the faith that we are called to and given by the gift of the Holy Spirit, is the same faith. It is the faith that runs in the same vein as these Old Testament saints. Why else would we have Hebrews 11 if it were not eminently relevant to our own exercise of, of faith before the Lord? There is nothing new, nothing novel in biblical religion. But there are differences, aren't there? I mean, it's speaking here of the elders, for, for by it, by faith, the elders obtained a good report. There are differences. We have far more revelation than they had. We have more promises, though similar. We have more promises than they had. We have clearer and fuller comprehension of truth than they had. Because the promised Messiah, Christ, has come, and as the God-man has come, and we have the whole account of his earthly ministry and him securing in his atoning work and death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, the completion of the purchase of all of the redemption of God's people. And we have all of the exposition of that through the apostolic ministry as it's recorded in the remainder of the New Testament. So we have more than they had which, if anything, puts greater heat on us. Because, look, we're being told they believed God 
with what they had. With the promises and revelation and everything else that was given to them, they exercised faith and looked through the window of promise to the promiser and walked before the Lord. And here we are with fantastic, overwhelming amounts of light under the light of the, the New Testament. How much more are we without excuse and how much more are we called to the exercise of faith as those who live under the full blaze of, of gospel light? And so we begin, first of all, with men of faith highlighted here in verse 2. Secondly, we have the means of faith. So it says, the means of faith, for by it the elders obtained a good report. For by it, for by faith. Notice that it is not for their faith they obtained a good report. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say for their faith. Right, that would lead us to believe that their faith was the cause for why they obtained a good report. That, that their faith would be reshaped, as it were, into merit. That they earned a good report through the exercise of their faith. That's not what it says. It says, for by it. Faith is the means through which they obtained a good report. Faith is the fountain of all holy obedience. Faith is the fountain of eminent service to the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith is the fountain for all of the patience in the midst of horrific suffering and so on and so forth. The exercise of faith produces the fruits, the fruits of abundant and abounding good works because faith is absorbed with the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is preoccupied with Christ himself. So with the exercise of faith comes an abundance of, of fruitfulness. But what happens if you reverse that? A person whose sole focus is on good works. I need good works. I need more good works. We need to press for good works and so on and so forth. Those who begin there end with nothing, a barren life. They end up with no good works that are acceptable before the Lord. It's actually this preoccupation with Christ and him crucified and the glory of the Redeemer, drawing upon him by faith through the instrument and ministry of the Holy Spirit, living by faith in the Son of God, that good works abound to the praise of God and to the glory of our Father who is in heaven. And so from the beginning, we're being told, faith from the beginning was fixed on things hoped for. From the beginning, it was able to see what was invisible. From the beginning, it was future-oriented so that from Abel onward, the faith that's being described with regards to our own need and for those in grace, Christian experience was the same. They looked forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, we look backward to the Lord Jesus Christ, but they also looked forward to heaven. as Chapter 11 will make clear as the inheritance. And we too still look forward into the future for 
for the same. This is what imparts strength to endure with the firm profession that we heard about earlier against all of the odds, against all of the impossibilities, all of the overwhelming hurdles, all of the blockades that are presented before the Christian day in and day out. And at various seasons, faith by the gift of God is given to impart strength and to strengthen the grip of that firm profession before the Lord. The Old Testament saints, of course, had other graces as well. They did. Moses was noted for his meekness, wasn't he? That's a, another grace. You think of Abraham, who is noted for his obedience. That's another grace. We'll hear about Enoch and Noah, who walked with God. These are other graces that are being manifest. But the crown that is set upon the head of them all is faith. Their faith is what is most notable. As I said, because faith, above all other graces, magnifies the grace and glory of God. Faith brings nothing. Faith contributes nothing. Faith receives from the Lord's own hand, magnifying him. And so for that reason, the devil is always attacking faith, isn't he? I mean, Jesus told Peter this. He said, Peter, Satan is coming to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. He was aiming for Peter's faith because if he could get that, then the other stuff would crumble under, underneath it. The Lord says, I'm praying for the preservation and perseverance of your faith. The devil comes in this way. And so there are those sitting under the preaching of the gospel in an unconverted state. And there are all sorts of things, right? The word is being sown like seed in, your so in the soil of your hearts, in your minds, your souls. And here is the word of God. And there are all these things that come, right? There's Jesus describes it as, you know, the, the, the deceitfulness of riches come and they, they choke out uh, the seed of the word. And so there's this rather than being called and inclined to come and receive the promise of the gospel, to behold the glory of Christ, heaven and hell, the need of your own desperate soul and so on, your eyes are diverted. And there's unbelief in order that you might focus your attention on the things of this world. And you think, well, this is what's exciting and this is what is important and this is what the world values and this is what will make me happy. And you begin to pursue those things. And you think, well, yes, yes, yes. You know, biblical religion has its place and so on and so forth. But it's, it's unbelief, isn't it? Christian faces the same thing in all sorts of ways. Trials come, sorrow, loss, suffering, pain, anguish, all their various forms, the uncertainties that follow with it. Faith becomes a target. Can we trust the Lord that this is perfect? That he is bringing to pass what is good? That he will withhold no good thing? As I've said again, as I said, I think recently, either here or elsewhere, Everything the Lord does is the very best with us. If there were anything better, that's what we would be getting as believers. 
Because if there were anything better and we weren't getting it, he would be withholding a good thing from us. And he's promised that he'll never do that. He'll never withhold a good thing from us. That he, you know, faith is attacked in terms of how I, I feel more sinful in the furnace than I did before the furnace. How is the Lord getting glory in this? He's heating it up. He's burning off dross. The dross is coming to the surface and so on. But there are all these things. Where is the Lord's love in it? I know he's sovereign. He's in control of it all. But where is his love in it? Right? Attack on faith in these things. That's true in sorrow. It's true also in prosperity. To pick up on a point I made last week, we can look at times of prosperity with unbelief and begin to think they matter, that they're important, that they're significant in adding to my satisfaction and happiness, that they are contributing something meaningful and substantial to my life. That is unbelief. Because the Bible teaches you by faith to look through those things to the recompense of the reward, as we heard earlier. In chapter 10, we'll hear again in chapter 11 to look through to the inheritance that God has laid up in heaven, to see that this is what is of enduring value. This is what is truly important, significant, valuable, delightful, satisfying, and so on and so forth. Faith sees through to what really is of great substance to us. And so we were to be careful. Satan attacks. He attacks faith especially. And so we need to give ourselves to, to the word of faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Then we need to be those who are soaked in the word of God. Meditation on the word of God fuels faith. Not a cursory reading over the passage that's been appointed for the day in your Bible reading plan. To stop, think, pray, question, dig, study, soak in the word of God. That fuels faith, right? We're filling our, our souls with the light of his truth, dispelling the darkness that is, that is there. He's blowing coals. He's blowing on the coals of faith in our soul through meditation on his word. That we need to keep up a sight of Christ's wounds, even at the throne of heaven, to keep up the, the, the affectionate reflections upon his atoning sacrifice and all of the far-reaching implications for the details of our life. We need to keep up and, and meditate upon the glory of heaven. You can't just sit under the preaching of the word of God and hear as we have that heaven and the eternal uh, uh, inheritance that the Lord has given, that, that this is uh, what the Lord describes as a better and enduring substance and say, yes, that's true. Theoretically, I understand it. And I check, I can check that off my list of orthodoxy. You need to be overcome with the truth. The truth needs to lay hold upon you. You know, when God comes to Abraham, he says, Abraham, here's what I want you to do. I want you to walk through the length and breadth of the promised land. Walk over the whole land and see it. Stop and look at the rivers Stand upon the mountains. Look at all the produce. Look at the fertile soil. Everywhere you're, the sole of your foot sets, that is going to be yours. Abraham knew, as chapter 11 makes clear, 
that the promised land was just a picture, that it was pointing to heaven itself. And we know that, you know, even more clearly. We've heard all about it in Hebrews. There's something similar for us. We, as those who are believers, we are to, as it were, walk over the length and breadth of the eternal promised land. Not just this kind of bland, theoretical, truncated notion of heaven, but we are to actually meditate on the glory to come. Sanctified imagination that is harnessed by the constraints of God's word, set aflame so that we begin to see and see and see more and more clearly all that the Lord has prepared for his people, what he's revealed about what he has prepared for his people, to excite us, to attract our, 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 our affections and so on and so forth. We're to walk over the whole land in order that we might be weaned from this world, in order that we might be a truly spiritually minded, heavenly minded people. It's interesting that the Lord Jesus Christ experienced his transfiguration as part of the preparation for his sufferings. When he's talking with Moses and Elijah, they talk about literally the exodus. They're talking about the sufferings that are to come. Here is Christ transfigured, this, this, this preamble, if you will, this little foretaste of the glory that was going to come far greater. That was preparatory for all of the sufferings so that he would have the joy that was set before him and thereby endure the cross, despising the shame. The believer is similar. The believer has to be captured by the thought of God's glory. And that is part of what fuels faith, enable us to walk through the fires and sorrows and difficulties and setbacks that the Lord, the crosses he calls us to shoulder in this, in this world. We're to exercise faith in the use of, of ordinances. We're to be in the public assembly and under the means of grace, all of those ordinances. We're to family worship, private worship, and so on. We need to exercise faith and the use of ordinances, you think of the language of Psalm 92, which we sing in verse 13. Those that be planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. Those planted in the, in the house of the Lord, they shall flourish under, under his blessing. We have the means of faith here. Right? Our chief concern is to be pleasing God. That's what faith does. Faith gives. The object of faith is Christ himself. We're looking to the glory of God in Jesus Christ, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are looking through the means of the word. And our, 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 our whole field of vision is filled with him so that our great concern, our great burden, our great anxiety, our stress is on pleasing him. We know he looks upon, he doesn't despise, he delights in those who are of broken and contrite spirit. We walk with humility, true humility, not the fake stuff that's easy to put on because it pleases him. We've been told it pleases him. We hope in mercy because he tells us he, 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 he is pleased with those who hope in his mercy. We walk in godly fear, the fear of the Lord, because he delights in that. And we could go on and on and on, right? Faith is fueling these things because Christ is the one 
we are seeking to please. Faith in mortification of sin, in killing sin, and growing in Christ-likeness and in conformity by the Holy Spirit, being transformed into his same image. Right? This is something that has to be carried out with faith, not with raw you know, how-to tactics or something else. Separation from the world. Keeping ourselves unspotted from the world. This is only brought about by, by the exercise of faith. 1 Peter 4, verse 4, Wherein they think it strange that ye run not with them to the same excess of, of riot, speaking evil of you. Who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead? It's the sight of him that, that, that brings separation from the world. The same thing as self-denial. Who in the world, left to their own fallen human nature, would take up self-denial. If all you see is what you see with your eyeballs, that's never going to be something you pursue. It is seeing the unseen, as verse 1 tells us, that enables us to see truly, and thereby to see self-denial for what it is, to say no to ourselves as saying yes preeminently to Christ and to his glory and to his kingdom and all that is associated with that. We're able to see how is it that a believer submits to the Lord in suffering instead of railing against it and kicking against the pricks? Faith is what brings a soul that will acquiesce in the Lord's hand, will yield to him, that will will his will even when that will results in their pain. Patience and submission and suffering, communion with God, Right, faith in its full bloom in some ways is, is in this immediate communion that is to be held with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The giving and receiving, the intimate fellowship, the sweetness, the heavenliness of it, the, the, the sweet savor of being with the Lord in the presence of the Lord and in communing with the Lord. This comes by faith. For those of you who are unconverted, the Bible says that you can only be justified by faith alone. The only way to be brought into acceptance, the only way to be made right before the Lord is through something outside of yourself. No sinner comes to God with anything in their hand or heart or head to commend themselves. Every sinner who comes truly, that is to say who comes by faith, comes absolutely empty. Conscious of our, our, our spiritual brokenness, deprivation, bankruptcy. We have to come and say, my only hope is all that Christ is and all that Christ has done. Nothing else. Not an ounce. Nothing but him. We come on his terms to receive him. To receive the forgiveness of sins and the cleansing of his own blood. To receive not a righteousness of our own, but an alien one. His righteousness. Credited to our account by faith. This is all 
For those of you who are outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is what you are called to. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved in thy household. Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world. By the grace of God, you are to look to him and lay hold of him and rest in him and receive him and him alone. And for those of you who are converted, who are in a state of grace, how do you live? You live by faith. You live by faith, sanctifying faith all, all life long. There is nothing that is worth more than the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing. To have him is to have all. To have the Lord Jesus Christ means to have all that you could ever want or need. To be left without any, to, to never be left without anything that your heart might so desire. Well, when the Christian comes to see that, and when they begin to live under the light and power of that truth, as chapter 11 will show us, it transforms absolutely everything. It transforms everything. So that we live by faith in the Son of God. There is a constant conscious dependence in everything for him. All the time, everywhere, including right now. You should be under the preaching of the word of God this very moment, saying, Lord, help me to hear. I can't, I can't sit under the preaching of the word on my own. I can't profit from the preaching of God's word on my own. I can't understand it. I can't receive it. I can't be transformed by it. I can't obey it. I can't do it. I can't be moved by it. Lord, help me, help me, help me. You're walking by faith under, in your pews, under the ministry of the word of God, drawing by faith upon Christ and the help of the Holy Spirit to come and say, help me hear as I ought to hear. It's true, my friends, in everything and everywhere. And so we have the means of faith, which is a gift of God given by the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, we have the memorial of faith. Thirdly, the memorial of faith. For by it, the elders obtained a good report. So we have these words, obtained a good report. It's actually, in the Greek, it's in the passive voice. You know, by it, we could say, were witnessed of. The elders were witnessed of, or you could say, received a testimony of, of God. You say, well, you know, they obtained a good report from whom? Or they were witnessed of by whom? Received a testimony from whom? The answer is from the Lord himself. God gave the testimony of high worth to them. The Lord did. Of acceptance and of approval by God himself. I mean, he states it in chapter, in verse 2. He's going to go on and say it again in verse 4 when you get to Abel. He says, he says there, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous. You get it again in verse 5, where it says, for before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. So there's two illustrations of it right out of, out of the box. You get the same thing in many, many, many other places. The one 
One that I'll, I'll point your attention to is at the very end of the Old Testament. In fact, the last book, second to last chapter, there in Malachi 3, it says, verse 16, Then they that feared the Lord spake oft one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. They shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts in that day, when I make up my jewels. It's the same concept that's given to us there and, and in other places. And so it is by faith. By faith, they and you are able to receive commendation from the living God. Not from men, not even from exalted angels, but commendation from God himself. Now this is important because it was important in reference to our Redeemer, to the Lord Jesus Christ. It was foretold in Isaiah, in Isaiah 42 verse 1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect, in whom my soul delighteth. I will put my spirit upon him and so on. In whom my soul delighteth. And then we come to the Gospels and there at the baptism and again at the transfiguration. This is my beloved son. In whom I am well pleased. It's a fulfillment of Isaiah 42. This is our Lord Jesus Christ. You have it in the Gospels elsewhere as well. In, in John chapter 8 verse 29 we're told... And he that sent me is, is with me. The Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. It was true of the Lord Jesus Christ as the Redeemer in his unique capacity as the Savior in, 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 in securing the accomplishment of redemption for his people. But in Christ, in union with the Lord Jesus Christ, as those who are, who, who are indwelt by his Holy Spirit, what would be otherwise humanly impossible becomes possible. So that the believer, by grace, is able to please the Lord himself. The question is, who do you want to please? That's the question. Who do you want to please? Whose praise counts? Whose approval counts? There are lots of names and faces that come to mind when I ask the question. There's all sorts of people that perhaps you've been dying to, to please, to get their approval and worked hard for and been unable to do it at times, perhaps ever. Whose praise counts most? You know, men will make great efforts, incredible, extraordinary efforts to obtain the favor of men, to obtain the favor of kings political leaders, to, you know, the favor of bosses at work, colleagues or whatever. Soldiers will do heroic events that are life-threatening and so on in order to have praise as heroes for their valiant courage and so on and so forth. But there's something actually deep in the heart of every one of us. This inclination in the flesh, in sin, toward people-pleasing. In various degree, in various degrees, and it manifests itself in various and indeed diverse ways. But it's there. The inclination 
to a sinful sort of, of people-pleasing. The Bible tells us that the fear of man bringeth a snare. It'll tie you up. It'll tie you in knots. It'll entangle you. The fear of man bringeth a snare. It is faith that fuels the fear of God. And it is the fear of God that destroys the fear of man. When God looms large, his, his transcendent, majestic glory, when we have a sight of it, we have a sense of his presence with us, and we know what his word requires of us, when that is filling our hearts and heads, men become inconsequential, infinitesimally small, so that you could flick them off the table in comparison. Because the Lord is all in all. Faith fuels this fear of the Lord. And there's this transformation. Instead of seeing people with all of the threats and all of the, perhaps, benefits that would come from pleasing them, you know, the pressures that come from all of that, that we can see easy. With our eyeballs, that's all in front of us. We're faced with that all the time. Faith sees what is unseen. And it brings the Lord near. And it brings the Lord to loom large. And that transforms everything for us. And that's what's described in, in verse 27. By faith he forsook, this is Moses, forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. The most powerful political figure on the planet. Not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Moses saw Christ. And Pharaoh became puny as a consequence. Faith, faith fuels this fear of the Lord. It was true of Moses' parents, by the way, as well. If you look at verse 23 of the same thing, it was true of his parents as well. Paul's writing to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And he says there in uh, verse 4, but as we were allowed of God to, to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak not as pleasing men, but God, which trieth our hearts. In fact, he says it even stronger in Romans 8. In verse 8, when he says, So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. So the believer is put in a position where there is this desire to please the Lord, not to please men, not to please men. It's interesting for those of you who are adult singles. This is what's highlighted in 1 Corinthians 7 there in verse 32 when he says, guess what your job is? Numero uno, your number one job as a single adult is to please the Lord. And you're able to do so in ways that you, in degrees that you can't, or in the same way as when you're married. Please the Lord, he says. That's what we're called to. And yet pleasing men is such a, such a persistent snare. In Galatians 1 verse 10, it says, For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of God. He's saying there's a sinful type of pleasing men which is incompatible with pleasing God. Juxtaposition. There's an antithesis. 
between these two things. And so we're to beware of it. It comes in the form of comparing ourselves among ourselves. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12. Or excuse me, 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 12, where it says, For we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. And yet, how common is this? You see something in someone else, and it makes you feel a little elevated about yourself. Sure, I have my strengths and weaknesses, but I'm not like them in this area. We can be like the Pharisee. Thank God I'm not like this publican. We can do it in subtle ways where we're comparing ourselves among ourselves and thereby commending ourselves. But verse 18, for not, for not he that commendeth himself is proved but whom the Lord commendeth. We're not to be commending ourselves. Our goal should be that our name is buried in oblivion. Oh, to God that he would grant this wish to us, that our name would be buried in oblivion, but that what we have done will contribute in some way and under his blessing in various forms to the exaltation and extension of the glory of his name, of Christ's name. His name forever shall endure. Last like the sun it shall. Men shall be blessed in him and blessed. All nations shall him call. Psalm 72. That's our goal. That his name would be exalted and would be everything. Well, when we have this good report, the commendation that comes from God alone, it will result in the reproaches of the world. You're not going to get the praise of God and the praise of men together. These things do not come together. You think of all of the Psalms, just Psalm after Psalm after Psalm, where David and others, you know, are, are, are bewailing all of the ways in which they're being attacked and lied and slandered and, and accused, falsely accused, and so on and so forth. Psalm 64 they, uh, that they may shoot in secret at the perfect. Suddenly do they shoot at him and fear not. They encourage themselves in an evil matter. They commune of laying snares privily. They say, who shall see them? That kind of language is, is everywhere. And so there's no shock. There's no surprise. There's no disorientation when the Lord's people find themselves bearing the reproach of the Lord Jesus Christ in reference to the world. Indeed, there is consolation for us in this passage. The elders obtained a good report. We're going to hear all that they suffered and all that they were attacked and maligned and all that they endured and so on and so forth. We can be despised and vilified and reproached, but the consolation is the hope and aim of a good report from God. The condemnation commendation of the Lord himself. Sadly, not only in the world is there um, maligning, attacking, accusing, vilifying, and so on. Too often it's in the church as well, where reproach happens. You know, you think, for example, of godly elders 
dealing with very rebellious people who in all of their attempts to help them are attacked by them. No wonder Paul says, the more I love, the less I am loved. But you think more broadly about one another and about those in other churches and so on and so forth. We need to be very, very, very careful about how we speak about other people, other believers. We need to be very careful because there can be a partisan spirit where we think, well, we, you know, we're not the same. We have differences. We do. Convictions are different. Thank God for light he gives us. Pray for more. But there can be this partisan spirit that comes. We need to be very careful how we speak about other people because we could be putting ourselves in the crosshairs of the Almighty and speaking about his own, those whom he's commending in the exercise of their faith in so many ways, right? Faith sees, faith sees that God sees now, that he knows, right? That sense of his presence. So in the midst of being attacked at work or in the neighborhood, the family or whatever the other circumstances are, there can be a sense of the Lord's presence that he sees and knows, he sees through it all. And I have a very, very, very vivid memory you know, not long after I was converted as a young person in my late teens, being in a context which is absolutely, uh, the context is entirely unimportant, but surrounded by other people. And I remember being in a place, I know the setting, I know where I was sitting, I know everything about it, where my heart was drawn and given by this, you know, a sense of the Lord's presence, that despite all that's happening with these people around me, in reference to me, that the Lord saw it. He could see through it all. He knew all. He knew where I was. He knew where my heart wasn't. It was bliss, absolute bliss. Sunshine poured in. Faith, seeing that God sees in all of these things. But faith also sees the last day. Faith can see the last day. What will matter then? On the last day, at the judgment, what will matter then is all that matters. You need to get that in your head and hearts. What will matter on the last day is all that really matters. And that's the way we should think about things. Who is going to care about anything else? And powerful people, important people, significant people, whatever, the whole world, it doesn't matter, all of the history of humanity. No one is going to care two hoots about what any one of them think. Everyone is going to care exclusively about the one on the throne and what he thinks and what he says and his verdict is all that's going to matter. The believer lives in pursuit of hearing those words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Nothing else that's happened in this world is going to amount to a hill of beans at the pronouncement of those words, final triumph, public acquittal. The Lord promises he will honor those who honor him. We see it in Samuel, of course, where that language comes. We sing about it in places like Psalm 50, verse 23. We need to have a sight by faith of the last day. You are not going to be content to die until you have a love for the heavenly world. That means learning to live. That means learning to leave a lot of stuff, most stuff for the last day. This is one point among a handful 
this is one point of counsel I'm always drilling into students for the ministry and young ministers. Get it in your head as soon as possible. There is way more than you think that you need to learn to leave for the last day. You think, well, this person, they misunderstood and that was wrong and they're saying this and that's wrong and this is going, this, you know, and all this, so we got to fix it. And I, if they could only see and if I could persuade everybody, if I could you know, fix the lies and if I could do all these things and so on and so forth, forget it. There's a place to defend ourselves at times. But you're going to have to learn as the Lord's people to leave a lot for the last day and get on with it. It's done. Lord, this is, this is thine. And you're going to sort it out at the end. And I'm happy to just move on. Things that can't be fixed. Sometimes the Lord grants, obviously, the repair of such things in this world. But there's much which he calls us to leave with him. We need to cultivate. We need to cultivate the value of this memorial, this blessing of faith. Obtaining a good report, the commendation of God. How much weight do you put on that? How much does that mean? How much do you value it? How much do you dream about it? How much do you long for it? Well, faith has this memorial, and it is a tremendous encouragement to the Lord's people. If, if, if they can lay hold of this, indeed, if the Lord would lay hold of us in this truth, there is something liberating about it. Christ as all in all. Christ is to have all. To have Christ is to have all. May he receive the glory. Let's stand for prayer. Almighty God in heaven, we come asking for thy favor. Lift up the light of thy countenance upon us. Grant us, O God, to see by faith, to see truly and clearly. Give us to live and long for thine own commendation, to desire to please thee above all and in all. Give, O Lord, grant, grant to us that Christ would have the glory among us, that everything about us would be laid in the dust, and that he would have all the preeminence in all that we are and all that we do. We ask it in his precious name. Amen.